0: On this episode of UNFTR's show notes. I mean, come on, look at that. That's a penis.
1: The show notes. Calling out listeners one by one. Show notes. Loopers and thank yous. It's so much fun. Hi, 99. <laughs> what an intro, hello
0: Hey, it's uh, it's show notes Hanging after the uh, quickie
1: For unfucking the republic
0: Yeah, that's our podcast
1: It is, it's your podcast that I tag along to
0: It's our podcast sure. Between the three of us Hi Manny Hi Oh, you want to be Manny? Do you want to do Manny?
1: Yeah, I just did
0: Okay, hey Manny
1: Hi, I'm Manny Faces there's a snake in my boot. <laughs> okay. Toy Story.
0: I'm I'm a little okay. Well, I'm not perturbed. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm beside myself that uh, we're recording this the night after the Mets were swept by Hotlanta, and now Manny is in Hotlanta, as everybody knows, and that's fine. And he actually did rep at one of the games with his Yankees. Hat on, which is fine, you know, it's not rooting for the Braves, and is uh beautiful, stunning, and far superior in the partnership wife rep for the Mets. So that was great. Of course, we got swept. I was mean to my family last night. Legitimately mean to my to, to everybody. I was so But then again, so if if in the beginning of this season you said to me as a Mets fan and I'm sure that you would sign on as you are also a Mets fan hey you're in the division with the world championship Braves tell you what you signed today guaranteed wild card spot are you in I'm signing that all day every day right because you didn't know coming into the season right Did Steve Cohn really have the magic and yet it hurts so bad watching them get swept I was I just I was mean to my family I, there's just no excuse for that no None, right?
1: No, I think you should work on that.
0: <laughs> I I should. I should. It's it's legitimately the only thing it's the it's the one thing about my personality that I that is so out of step with everything else that I try to be is this You're looking at me funny.
1: The one thing?
0: I I think everything else is just my personality. Obviously. Okay. <laughs> but this one thing, this one th- this insane I, I mean, I fly into a legitimate rage when the Mets lose, especially if I'm in for every pitch. And I can't, I i, I don't know how to square it. But this mm-hmm. is the life of a Mets fan. I it's mean, this they is give, what it is.
1: It's because with the Jets, there's no hope. Right. So it's like you go and you're like, well, if they win, that'd be cool. With the Mets, they give you hope every year, and then they take it away.
0: They gave so me a taste of it when I was f- an adolescent. And fool
1: me I, once, shame on you. Yeah. Fool, fool me, me twice.
0: twice. Shame on them. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into show notes here. I'm in a much better mood today because we're going to the playoffs. We're going to the playoffs. And we're just going to have to take care of business. We're just going to have to do it. We're doing it the hard way, but that is the Mets way.
1: Fuck it. We'll do it it live.
0: Fuck it. We'll do it live. We'll do it
1: live. Fuck it.
0: (laughs) Why don't you kick us off? You have a message for unfuckers.
1: Yes, I do. So we are moving our show notes recording day to earlier in the week. Currently we record on Tuesday or Wednesday, which cuts it pretty close when and initially we dropped them Wednesday, then it moved to Thursday, and now it's like midday Friday. So we've just had, I mean, partially we've had a lot of feedback in the last couple of weeks with the healthcare episodes and even the Clinton episodes as far back as whenever that was. But yeah, so we want to try to get the show notes to everyone earlier because if we release them Friday and then the regular episode Saturday, it's like you don't have a chance to breathe. So we're moving, we're moving it to Monday. Now, this means it's a quick turnaround if you want to listen and give immediate feedback or write in your thoughts. So if you do want to do that, if you're like, like I know Knudsen, he's always like midnight. He's always checking out what's in tweeting about it. So, you know, Knudsen, he might get to it immediately. Send in some thoughts. If that's not you, that's fine. If it is you, if you can send them in by like Monday morning, maybe noon EST, then we can likely get to them in show notes recording if not it could be next week it could be whenever so i just wanted to tell everyone that obviously all of our most of our content is evergreen and we often discuss past episodes in show notes but just to let everybody know for those who do like to you know be right on the ball right with the feedback that's that's going to be the way it is now hopefully yeah
0: and we'll always get to everything it well, just may not, not be everything. in the week
1: <laughs> there are some emails that don't make it yeah, we fair. get too, we get too many at this point right like truly so I don't want to that was our old promise. We right. have to reset our expectations. Right. We used to try to respond to every email. That's completely untenable at this point, which is a good problem to have. Yep. So this is the vehicle in which we talk to you. If we can, sometimes we do respond, but don't don't take it personally if we don't. And and yeah, we're, you know, we're looking forward to this and hopefully can start like a new, a new leaf again, and people maybe will get back into it because I can imagine having them so close together. We probably lost some people who are just listening to the main episode. That's fair. Yeah, That's so fair. come back in.
0: Don't forget, we're also in the middle of our trifecta raiser, raising funds, friends, and hell, and we're notching up some new membership wins. So thank you for that, everybody who's who's signing on board. We're creeping up. We're still a ways away from our goal of hitting 420 members this year so keep it cranking on fuckers we're into i think the mid 270s which is amazing and it's up a dozen 13 14 from when we started the thing we legitimately would have to hit like you know 10 12 a week to get there by the end of the year that's okay if we don't get there whenever we get there we'll release our marijuana legalization episode just had a brain fart did you hear that did i yeah you see it? i
1: didn't know it was happening yeah i was looking at the members list and then you just said marijuana, and marijuana. paused and looked at me
0: which is i think appropriate <laughs> i so, guess yeah so we'll get there and and we're just extremely appreciative of everybody that's been helping us
1: you know what get i'm not i'm not appreciative on. you're not no why i'm just kidding
0: okay and on the friendraiser front we're still seeing a lot of activity on social media so thank you for all the new introductions to the newbie fuckers and most importantly for america Please continue to make yourselves heard on the social channels for Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin and Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. We're coming down to the wire and all of the social media love and moral support that you can give these extraordinary candidates as well as any progressive candidates in your area will make a difference. Midterms are usually tainted by apathy, which means it's up to us to show up and turn out on fuckers. Otherwise, we're just yelling into the void for no reason. And you know this, the conservatives especially the fundamentalists, they show up all the time. School boards, local elections, mayoral elections, you name it. I mean, they're there. Mayoral. They're there. They show up. So it's up to us. We got to do this. And with that, let's get into specific feedback. We've got emails to start. Stephen J. kicks us off by saying, quote, the thing I'm wondering with the bills that do pass is how much of these bills that actually do pass are ones that donors advocate for. I'm not saying the Inflation Reduction Act was a bad bill to pass, but I wonder how much for the donor pork was in there, especially considering the Manchin deal. Joe Manchin's side deal, by the way, fell through thanks to progressives. There are some levers that progressives do have, and hopefully, as more progressives getting into Congress, they can pull the levers more effectively. Stephen Jay, thank you for that. Yes, that's one of our mantras here is that we may not get every win, but if you look at the bills that have passed and you look at the stuff that people love about the bills that have passed, they are by and large progressive measures that will go to benefit the working class in this country and help us you know, get on a path to a greener future, even though it's going to take longer than obviously we wanted. But we got to start somewhere. And I think that those the bills that were passed this year do a really good job of getting the ball rolling and again, for those of us that live on the progressive end of the spectrum, it's it's nowhere near what needs to happen. And we know that there are parts of this economy that need to fundamentally change and that a lot of this is window dressing. That being said, didn't see it coming under Biden, truly. So you have to, you have to take the wins where you get them and you have to give the credit where it's due. But just remember, those things, those really good things, the things that everybody loves, that's from the progressive side of the spectrum. So let's keep on filling the, the numbers. We just have to keep getting numbers on our side. Now, as far as uh, what Stephen's saying here with the bills that pass and how much of it is what the donors want, a lot. And I think what I tried to illustrate in the, in the quickie was that when we do have bipartisan support or even a bill like the Inflation Reduction Act that had – Republicans in lockstep performatively voting against it. There was plenty, plenty of pork available for the military industrial complex and big business. So big business got a lot of things. If you look at the energy sector, for example, there are a lot of giveaways to the energy companies to continue business as usual and to help them transition into the renewable space. So... These entrenched players have a lot of incentives to continue investing in renewable energy. They also have incentives to keep doing what they're doing. And the government will say that it's as a bridge to a greener future, which we know is, is bullshit. We don't have to give subsidies to you know large fossil fuel companies to keep on doing what they're doing. So it's messy stuff. And again, we don't love it through and through. But there's good stuff in there along with the bad stuff. As far as how much is related to donors – Oh, a lot. just just a lot. There's no question about it. And what I tried to illustrate in the Secure Act as an example is how much of that was probably written by lobbyists, certainly written by think tanks, because if you think about covering the costs of the businesses to actually do this, the cottage industries that are going to arise to help implement retirement plans and define contribution plans, there's just a lot of money that's going to pour into it and that is going to facilitate business. They're not just saying, "Hey, this is something that you have to do." They're going to they're saying you have to do it and they're going to subsidize the efforts. That's that's got business written all over it and that's fine. I think that's that that's that's a better way to spend the money than in some of the other ways that we've been doing it. As far as the the military industrial complex bills, well those are just those are purely written by and written for the military-industrial complex, there's no question about it. I mean, a trillion dollars, add it all up, a trillion dollars a year going into the military-industrial complex with no wars on the horizon that involve the United States, and certainly no immediate discernible threats to our soil. And By the way, I'm not being naive in saying that there aren't existential threats that are coming from other parts of the world. But it's different now. It's we're, we're still investing as heavily as we ever had and, and more so into conventional warfare. And we went through that in our climate industrial complex episode. If you look at the amount of money that the Department of Defense is allocating towards simply shoring up resiliency in parts of the world that we haven't had to think about, like, I don't know, the part that, of the world that used to be covered by fucking ice, but now it's a, a wide open ocean, we're allocating literally tens and tens of billions of dollars to allow us to get into a part of the world that actually wasn't passable before, because we see it as a threat and an opportunity. So there's always going to be money to spend, but they're doing it in conventional ways. It's not just all for cybersecurity resilience. It's not just for uh, protecting the uh, nuclear assets that we have in this country. It's conventional warfare. And all that does is fill the pockets of these private companies. It's, it's pretty stunning. Anyway, so, yeah, the answer to that, Stephen Jay, is probably a whole fuck of a lot, and that's how we pass legislation in this country. If it works for the so-called free market, then it's going to get passed, and in getting passed, it implies that the market is anything but free because it can't exist on its own. It needs the support of government spending, and that's the fucking ha-ha of the whole thing. (laughs) So there you go. Let's get into general feedback, and we've got Rebecca C. What did Rebecca have to say?
1: So she shared a resource and said, I wanted to bring a native concern I've just learned about to your awareness, and it's halftownmustgo.org. It looks like the U.S. government is continuing to recognize a person who this nation has removed from leadership and is continuing to terrorize members of the community. Can you check this out and put the message out to unfuckers to call on the U.S. government to respect our treaties and the sovereignty of this indigenous nation?
0: So a little bit of dual research responsibilities here. We looked into it a little bit. And haven't dug into uh, the veracity of of this claim in particular, but on the surface it looks like this is a very very you know credible issue for us to be taking apart. Uh, I believe this involves the Cayuga people, and that is on the border of New York and Pennsylvania. Cayuga territory is is split. I think there's a couple of different areas, but. If you are inclined to go take a look at it, and it's something that you believe is uh, mission aligned with your, you know, personal belief system, then halftownmustgo.org is where Rebecca is sending us. Independently, we'll look to verify the claims. We'll look to dig into the uh, the issue a little bit, and uh, and re- you know, revisit it. And show notes coming soon. So
1: yeah, it looks like they have an Instagram as well that shares stuff every week, and that's also halftownmustgo.
0: There you go. And John R. said, regarding show notes for FCC, just wanted to toss a quick music recommendation you might get a kick out of. Check out the Chicago Celtic punk band Flatfoot 56, less famous than the Dropkick Murphys, but in the same vein. Also, speaking of sounding like bagpipes, a throwback to my Gen X youth is Big Country. Yes. The Scottish rock band from the 80s, who are very, very tired of the question, how did you make your guitar sound like bagpipes? Well, they did it, and it was amazing. Great suggestion from John R., we will check out Flatfoot 56, and I appreciate the callback. Personally, I appreciate the callback to Big Country.
1: Yeah, they do, uh, isn't their most famous, famous song, "In a Big Country? It is. I love that song. There's a, a bunch of bands who do covers of it. One is Rogue Wave. They do a great cover. Mm. There's a small jam band called Mo who does a cover of it. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Great song. Dig it. hmm
0: Loved it when it came out.
1: In a big country, across a mountainside, stay alive. Thank you. Okay, Joelle said, Just heard Abigail Disney on Mark Marin's podcast. She works a lot of FMF themes into the conversation while describing her new doc, The American Dream, and other fairy tales. Hope this is on your radar. So I Googled her because I was like, is this a typo? But she's actually a Disney, which I should have realized reading The American Dream. But she is, I think she's a niece of, yeah, she is, she's Roy Disney's daughter.
0: Oh, wow. Well, she has to be up there in years, too, then.
1: 62. I I wouldn't really call that up there in years. That's fair. 62 is like young. Thank you. You're not sick. You're nowhere near 60.
0: That just means I'm a baby.
1: Sure. I can call you a baby. I mean, you're a baby in other ways, but. <laughs> She's a documentary film producer, philanthropist, How the fuck and am I a baby? social activist. How are you, baby? How am I a
0: baby? Just when I'm watching the Mets.
1: Uh, I don't know. Why do I have to back up my claims? What is this, a fact based podcast all of a sudden? You just call
0: me a baby. Yeah. In front of our entire audience.
1: Yeah. Wow. Disney and her husband, Pierre Hauser created the Daphne Foundation in 1991 in order to fund programs that confront the causes and consequences of poverty in the five boroughs. That's nice. She seems great. Our five boroughs? Yeah. They're up
0: here. They're over here. How about that?
1: Yeah, she's, uh, she seems great. Wow. In 2021... She published an opinion piece criticizing practices by wealthy individuals who reduce their tax burden and protect their wealth across generations through practices such as offsetting income with losses in unrelated businesses, structuring assets to grow rather than generate income, then borrowing against those growing assets for cash needs and deducting interest payments Mm -hmm. and and state taxes from taxable income. Wow. And she's she's fucking she criticized Bob Iger's comp at Disney. Wow. Pop off, Abby. I know I like her. Good for her.
0: I like me some Mark Maron. Do you?
1: Um, I'm... Such
0: a curmudgeon.
1: I'm neutral. Yeah? I... He's just
0: such a salty fuck. I, I, I get a kick out of it.
1: Yeah, I guess... I guess I have probably an unfounded dislike of... And it's not his fault, but the way he is lauded as, like, a founding father of podcasting when there are so many podcasts that have run longer than his, so... I think that's where my criticism or my whatever comes from. Mm-hmm. It's like you know when it, we were just talking about this last week. Like once you get like a bad taste in your mouth, sometimes it's hard to get it out, even if the person didn't actually do something. So you like remind yourself like, oh, I don't actually hate them. I just hate like the institution around it. Yes. So that's why I'm I'm neutral. I've I'm listened. Just, I just meh.
0: I like how unapologetically salty he is, and all of his issues are just. Front and center, he's he's just out there with each one of them, and he knows he's like impossible to live with. He he's an impossible person, and I always get a kick out of when he when he interviews somebody that he really doesn't fucking know, <laughs> and you can tell, and you might be like really into that person, and he's just like, "So what's your deal?" You know. Anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, oh, he lived in Astoria, Queens. I didn't realize he was a Marin, a New Yorker. Oh, he's from he's from Jersey City.
0: Ooh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, never mind. All right. Well, Inigo G wrote in again, said 99's story about getting fired really resounded with me. The last corporate job I ever had, led by a pair of tech libertarians because, of (laughs) course, had a round of layoffs followed by an all-hands meeting where the boss reiterated, quote, that we're all family. But the reason I'm emailing is because I think it would be awesome for 99 to get her own segment on the show, unless I misunderstood the banter about staying in lanes, etc. But if that's what's happening, can't wait to hear it. So let's address part one of this and then we'll explore part two. So part one of this is something actually that 99 and I had we have had kind of spirited discussions, not, not angry discussions, just spirited discussions just about the nature of, of a business and the propensity of, of founders and entrepreneurs or just leaders and CEOs, the C-suite type to, quote, call it a family but it's not a family and we live this every day cuz we're we work together in a small business and i founded the business and it's you did i did and i i have the i have the desire to treat it like a family and there are members of this company that i consider family and so it it does it does it's do a hard me to bitter do it? pill <laughs> to it's a bitter pill to swallow to to reach those points in your career when you realize not everybody feels that way about it and it's a more bitter pill when you have to separate from somebody that did feel that way about it but they're no longer fit for the company so there's arguments on both sides where it's like well you know people get excommunicated from families too there are you know there are the the people that don't fit into families and they're still family what have you but that's a different dynamic. I think it's unhealthy and and it was actually 99 that got me, you know, pretty far down the road to to at least be able to see it this way and express it this way, where you can treat people with empathy and civility and all of the ways that you would want yourself to be treated, you know, the golden rule, but in business, but you they're not family. And it's okay to not have a family. You can have a family culture a family type environment you can have a warm and and welcoming and empathetic environment but it's still not a family and to characterize it as such i think is misleading and can lead to toxicity in its own way and so it again it was 99 that really kind of got me there through our discussions not on the pod but in our in our own kind of work lives but it took me a long time to get there because my desire to create a family type environment was always kind of running into the roadblocks of people leaving you and being hurt by that, and also having to part ways with people that, you know, you might have really, really liked, but they just couldn't do the job that was required. And it's a very delicate balance, but I definitely these days at least land on the side that it's not family, and to call it that is dangerous.
1: Yeah, I think it all stems from the way... The different generations work so that, you know, there's a lot of like memes about it, like boomers feel one way. Gen X feels another way. Like all you have to do is work. Family comes second. You know, then it trickles down. And now Gen, X, or Gen Z is like, fuck all of you. I'm not even I don't even want to work. I just want to live my life, which uh, respect, obviously. So I think your your viewpoints in the past came from your lived experiences of people working really because it was more common for people to stay somewhere for 30, 50 years then than it is now. So I think at, we're at this point where it's like when I joined, it was more of a legacy team because it was a smaller team. So all the people there were were pretty much legacy employees. Mm-hmm. So it was, quote unquote, that. But then as we expanded, it's like, no, these people, some of it's a swinging door. Some of them come in and immediately go out because they, you know, misrepresented themselves. They don't like it here. I want them fired, you know, it depends. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it's definitely... It's definitely one of those like red flag moments that people talk about, I think, in interviews, especially as like we're a family here. It's like, oh, really? So, you know, if I <laughs> if I run out of money, are you going to help me? Because that's what family does. Mm. You know, like, are you going to help me out? Are you going to take me to the hospital? Like, that's what family does. family doesn't ask you to work your ass off and, you know, work for no overtime or work on the weekends or whatever. So. Yeah, don't don't join anywhere. Uh, that says it's a family. And also probably don't work with your family.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into part two, because I've made no secret of the fact that I believe the show became the show once we started to incorporate 99's voice into it. And then so that that was during show notes. And then we brought a few topics across the finish line that were near and dear to 99's heart and then i started writing more in certain sections in 99's voice and in manny's voice because i I feel like it really opened up the breadth of the show and having them interject their own you know feelings and thoughts just makes it a better show because it's just not it's just not a lecture at that point it really becomes a collaborative affair as far as 99 having her own segment on the show that's a 99 call and it's something that we would absolutely make space for it's a question of like what would it be what would the tone be she has an incredible amount of responsibilities here with the show and with the company. It's not that easy to just come up with something and you don't want to just do it to say you have it, but it also wouldn't be my call. So, what are your thoughts,
1: 99? Um I mean, I do I like the idea of interjecting more of the human side and as I said last time like the socio not the economic because mm-hmm. that's what interests me more. And I do feel like there must be others who even listen to our show out there because I'm like some of the economic stuff just fucking it, a goes over my head or I if I understand it I just don't retain it. But like the stuff that gets more at my empathy and my humanity that I retain because it hurts more in a way. I mean, they, it all hurts, but some you know you can get lost in the numbers pretty easily. So you know I do like the idea of of that. But yeah, I mean I don't know how. Like for example, I'm trying to think of a past episode we've done. I don't know. Like let's say the Clinton one. You know, I easily could have done a segment on like the power dynamics in mm-hmm. in his presidency and with you know the way women, whatever. I could have done that. But like in a episode about
0: the FCC, that one I probably Just we're in the middle of it and doing I, another.
1: I could probably figure something out there, especially because I have, I actually have like firsthand experience from being in radio in mm-hmm. college and stuff. I'm trying to think give me one that's like really boring the washington consensus there you go <laughs> i don't think i could i don't without doing extensive research so maybe it's a it's a case of do i know anything about this because again i don't want to be i'm not i'm the first person to say i don't have the expertise to speak on that because i'm not going to pretend it's just why would i do that so Yes, and I can research, but again, just like there are certain things that you're not going to talk about. Like with the abortion episode, you weren't going to relitigate with the, the whole women's rights movements from a women's per- woman's perspective or uh, a, pers- a birthing person's perspective. So I don't want to be that person. But yeah, if, if the if the episode calls for it and I feel capable, I mean, I, I can write. I, I'm not as good as Max, but Please. I mean, <laughs> you, you, that's, I'm not – Trying to fish for compliments, It's true.
0: You're you're a great writer. I'm, my superpower is being prolific.
1: Okay. That's it. Okay. But there's
0: many more better writers out there than me. I
1: didn't say you were the best writer. Thank you.
0: So, I <laughs> know. No, uh, Bobby McDee.
1: I was going to go with like a Dan Brown as a joke, but I couldn't come mm. up with his name.
0: It's the fiction writer? There. I think the Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code, right. Yeah, you're yeah. no. Um, you know I don't read fiction. The
1: guy on Oprah who lied about his life. Oh yeah, that
0: fucking guy.
1: Mm-hmm. Who was that? Oh my god. Well, partially there's, I mean, there's the fucking Sweat Lodge guy. What was that guy's name? That
0: um, guy too. Sweat Lodge murder. Anybody guy. ever see Shattered Glass? What's the that? Stephen Glass story. Glass. Glass? James
1: Arthur Ray. So there's that guy, and then hmm. Oprah guy, Lying who Oprah lied.
0: Author. It was a big scandal. James Frey. A Million Little Pieces. Yes, yes, yes.
1: So you're no James Frey, but, you know. That's true,
0: that's true. If you haven't seen Shattered Glass and you're interested in journalism, check it out. It's really good. So one of the reasons that we do show notes was to kind of, I think, explore more fully the social side of things as 99 referred to it as. And it's also one of the reasons that we kept in post-show musings as well. Because there will be things that occur to us that are more conversational in tone, and that's a a chance for us to explore it, I think, as co-hosts together. Uh, Having a segment, I will say structurally, from a time management perspective, it would be asking a lot of 99 to incorporate something into an episode because there's times when... So the way that we gather material for the episodes is I have probably 20 to 25 shows on the docket at any given time. Some of it is related to what's happening in the news. Some are just fascinations that I've had. some just require reading two, three books, and it's going to take me a while to get through it all, et cetera. And then a couple of weeks out, I'll be like, okay, it's go time for this one, and then I'll really drill into it and get it going. And then to be able to, you know to to throw that to 99 a couple of days before and be like, this is the one we're going with this week. Put your thoughts in would be ridiculous on my part we would have to have a different kind of working relationship to figure that out but that's why we keep it a little more breezy right now with post-show musings because she gets a chance to digest the material then we hear it again when we're doing it actually live in the studio and then can you know kind of react to it so
1: yeah and if i mean the good part also about having aspirational episodes like let's say the crypto one is that Mm -hmm. if i see an article or a book i just throw in a rolling dock so i can sort of um control the narrative (laughs) by giving you resources. Absolutely. But um, you know and that's helpful and you know there have obviously been times where I'm like you have to include something about this Mm -hmm. please. You know like I wanted to talk about the Epstein stuff in the Clinton episode but you were like no. and I was like fine but we I think I talked about it (laughs) in you know post show musings or something but you know with the veganism episode obviously Mm -hmm. with the abortion topical cream with the uh, LGBTQ, what did we call that one? I don't know. <laughs> My brain is a little off today. It's it's rainy. It's cold here. I sound asleep still. So sorry. <laughs> so it's. Are you still thinking of what it's called? Yeah. I think it was called like unfucking language or something. I'll find it.
0: Something with acronym, right?
1: Um, just well, looking.
0: I'm. I'm. i um, You killed the title that I had on it. Thank. Thankfully.
1: I don't remember what it was, but yeah. obviously don't repeat it. <laughs> if I killed it, no, I won't. I won't. <laughs> it wasn't anything offensive. No, 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 I'm sure. no. It no. wasn't.
0: No, you're just like you're just. It, that's kind of reductive.
1: Mm. Just like the penumbra one. Is that the one you're thinking of?
0: Extinguishing the penumbra.
1: Yeah, oh, I loved that. I, well, I made you well, make you it, it the subhead yes, right, no because no one knows what a penumbra is. Like that's I said, right too. that's right. Where the fuck is this episode? We've done too many. Where are they? <laughs> hmm. On UNFTR and LGBTQ. All right. Behind the acronym. Behind the acronym. That's what it was.
0: So there you go. (laughs) But listen, at some point, you know that on the UNFTR network, we will probably launch Jam Bands and Dead White Men, right? Mm -hmm. The 99 show.
1: I like that. Yeah. So. But thank you for wanting to hear my voice and my opinion on things. That makes me really happy. Me too. But also, like, are you sure? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Are you sure? They're sure. Mm, Okay. Well. Shall we move on? Sure. Okay. W Bugs Bunny one said, my question is, are Republicans really Republicans and are Democrats really Democrats? Or are we just following what our parents, grandparents and so on have always been? Is it that we believe in the same 90 out of 100 issues and the 10 issues we don't agree with is what separates American Democrat versus the American Republican? Background and I guess unrelated. I've been listening for a year, came from Pitchfork and started listening from episode one.
0: That's amazing. Thank Thanks. you, Money one I think this is a really astute observation because one of the things I was trying to frame in the quickie at a, at a minimum is bipartisanship does tell us a little bit about who we kind of are as a nation. Remember the the part where I was talking about how Republicans really don't have a lot to stand on because they're getting a lot of what they need and what they want through these bipartisan efforts anyway. So they have to rely on the culture war issues in order to differentiate themselves and gin up their base. It's kind of the same thing with Democrats as well. They'll lean back into those same culture issues to be able – and it's like you know, chicken and the egg. It's like who's starting it and who's defending against it and who's – those are the mechanisms that they use to set us against each other and to fundraise. But on balance, I think this is a really good observation that it's probably nine out of ten things that were – pretty well aligned on, but we're so vehemently opposed on one out of 10 that we just we can't see each other clearly for who we are. But as Americans, we do stand for certain things, whether we realize it or not, whether we can name it or not. Still, after all of the time of doing this, after all of the research and the books that have been written about neoliberalism, if you stop anybody on the street and say, what do you think about America's neoliberal tendencies? They look at you with a blank stare like, the fuck are you even talking about? What is neoliberalism anyway? So I think a lot of these things are, are difficult to parse. And that's what makes identity politics so satisfying for people and so satisfying for media to dig into. And the media is complicit because that's the stuff that gets people tuning in. That's the shit that sells. I mean, if you lead with a story like Lizzo twerking while playing a, a slave owner's flute, you're you're gonna get a response like this. That that's just that's just where we're we're at. But that's where we've always been at as a country. That's just how we're hardwired. We we go for the bright shiny object, and we always have. So and that's why you'll notice we don't spend a lot of time on the one out of ten. What we try to do is show you how the nine out of ten have been as a result of an indoctrination that's taken place over decades and decades of deliberate work to attack the working poor and the middle class in this country and create a sense of otherness and separation between us. Because like the so-called establishment, if the rest if the country really figured out what was going on and how we were being fucked by the so-called establishment, there would be riots. There would be a fucking revolution. But they've made it so complicated and they have – they sort of I think thrown enough – You know, let them eat cake, right? They've given us enough to to chew on like, okay, so here's a little bit of marijuana legalization and let's make sure that everybody has a fucking iPhone and let's not crack down on free porn. Like there's – like my buddy Bobby from Brooklyn always says, the only reason that people aren't riding in the streets is that there's free porn and great weed these days. Like there's just enough out there to keep you satisfied that you're like, eh. I'm in my comfort zone. I don't necessarily. I can eat. I've got you know. It might not be a, a good meal, but I've I've got access to food and I've got a fucking smartphone and um, you know I can I can tune into something that makes me feel better about myself because I hate the other side. That's all very deliberate, and that's what we need to drill into. So I I think what W Bugs Bunny One is getting at here is there's more about us that is the same, and it's that stuff that we need to really. Really start to think about, as and to try and figure out, as a culture, as a people, and as a nation, because that's the stuff that's actually, you know, driving us apart, whether we realize it or not. Anyway, uh, W. Jeremy D. This is a long one, but I want to go. I want to stay with it. Also, uh, bear with me for a second. Something sort of clicked for me on supply chain during my grad school years. Many of my professors preached the quote Toyota Way, along with Lean and just-in-time procurement manufacturing techniques. Taken alone, these methods are super efficient and cost-effective, but if you look at our current supply chain issues with price and lead time, you can see these methods directly undermine resilience in that local inventory isn't maintained and vendor expectations are too tight. This isn't just a single-level problem because vendors and manufacturers from raw materials to retail-level products all use lean or JIT, which means just-in-time. This means any single disruption, see COVID, in procurement will disrupt the entire production process. If you read the Toyota way, you will see many neoliberal parallels. Just as a specific example, I own and run an automation company. The supply chain disruption started for us as soon as the raw materials tariffs put in place by Trump took effect and have gotten worse through COVID. In broad strokes. Our material costs are up 30 to 60%, and finished product delivery has gone from a six-week average from design to delivery to close to 30 weeks. I understand this isn't specifically, quote, progressive, but still applicable, I think. P.S. I won't argue best, but my favorite Western is Quigley Down Under. I shouldn't have read that last part because it really takes away from how incredible the rest of this is, W. Jeremy D. It's Tombstone. It's always been Tombstone since it came out, and it's still Tombstone, all right? So knock it off. Although I have to say, I do have a, even though he's a Republican, I have a soft spot for Tom Selleck.
1: I don't think I knew he was a Republican. No,
0: oh, now you do. Sorry. I mean,
1: he's old and white, so.
0: Yeah, and still rocks and has always rocked a mustache, and that's got to tell you something, right?
1: You have a mustache. I do not. What are you, what are you talking about?
0: I have, a, I have a bad beard.
1: It's a Beard, then it's connected, and it's you have a mustache
0: within the beard, it's not isolated. I don't, I'm not rocking a solo stash because I'm not in porn.
1: I have friends who have solo stashes,
0: and they're just trying to be ironic and funny, right?
1: Half and half, but I always like them, they make me laugh,
0: right? Because they're funny, yeah. But I'm a serious person in the world and a grown up, so no, I don't just have a mustache.
1: I, my friend, her. One of her best friend's fiancés has, like, a full-on handlebar. Like, like very— like, Then he
0: better be a bartender.
1: I think we said or he— Or a lo- barber. He looks like—there um. There is a show—do you remember Lazy, or chef. Lazy Town? Does yes. Did kids watch that? Yes. He looks like Sportacus? Yes. I'm going to pull him up.
0: That's a really weird show. Yeah. That's, a, like, an uncomfortable show.
1: Yeah, he looks like Sportacus. Yeah. I liked Lazy Town. I was definitely a little too old for it, but it was like one of those shows that was on when I got home from school. So it was like I got into it, like not not actually got into it, but I was like.
0: It was at the tail end when my kids were young, and it was sort of like a curiosity for like a minute and a half. And I was like, "Ooh, let's let's not get into this show." You watch Booba? No.
1: Booba, there were like these big orbs, Mm. and they kind of farted and danced around. It was like Teletubbies if you truly were tripping. I'll show you a picture. Okay. Everyone Google Booba.
0: Oh, that's familiar. Yes. Oh said, yeah, their penises. They said
1: Booba. I don't know yeah. what this is.
0: Look at their heads.
1: I mean, sure, but yeah. look at their bodies. I know,
0: but they're what they're you like uncircumcised at? penises.
1: Uh, I okay. With
0: elephantitis in the nuts.
1: Yeah, I was going to say there's, okay. you know, maybe you should go to the doctor.
0: So, I didn't say it was my penis. I just said it was like an uncircumcised penis with uh in the I would just assume
1: you've never seen any other one.
0: Well, what? Okay. It was weird. <laughs> so, let's go to supply chain for a second here because W. Jeremy D is, is calling out a memory for me. And that, it, I mean, come on, look at that. That's a penis.
1: I'm showing him boobah toys. Fine. Boobah
0: toys. The is that what we're calling them now?
1: They're, this is a toy. It is a doll. Mm-hmm. We got my sister one once for Hanukkah, ironically. I'm sure you did. We did, mm-hmm. ironically.
0: Okay. I'm sure 101 loved it.
1: You're a pervert.
0: You're a pervert.
1: You're, I'm, no, you're you, a pervert.
0: You brought my privates into this.
1: No, you did.
0: Anyway. So you're bringing back kind of like a haunting memory from my grad school days and talking about just-in-time inventory because I remember it was really, so I'm probably just a little bit older than Jeremy here. But it was it was absolutely a fascination all through grad school. And what was frustrating to me, so I have a, a master's in business. Ooh. what was frustrating for me, I would give I would gladly give it away. I' I'd gl- I'd gladly light it on fire right now if yeah, it could you've, keep you've the entire country much. warm. What was frustrating was it was all big business. It was all you know case studies from giant businesses or corporations that what I would consider now cutting corners in order to get somewhere, this idea of lean and just in time, really does make a lot of sense. You Why carry a boatload of inventory? And it's how a lot of retailers or how a lot of manufacturers ultimately get in trouble. That being said, there are accounting benefits to carrying a lot of inventory as well. Without getting into the details of it, though, there's an implication below all of it that I think is really fundamental and really important to understand. And that is that it has to come to be able to be that nimble, especially when you're manufacturing products overseas you're dealing with raw materials that might even come from another country the number of countries and hands and corporations that are involved in putting the the simplest things together is really stunning and it's obviously inefficient and it's and it's terrible for the world the reason it has grown and and become so fractured with this country putting a little piece together, this country putting another piece together, this one putting the finishing touches on it and then coming here for service, delivery, retail, consumption, et cetera, is because it's constantly chasing the nexus of cheap labor. So in every part of the process, in order to maintain just-in-time inventory, you have to have an incredibly brutal system on both the backs of labor and the environment. And it's why we are in the situation that we're in right now, in terms of how consumption and how manufacturing helps destroy the planet. You can look at it from the food chain. You can look at it to raw materials for production, for cars, for uh, for pretty much anything. It's a, it's a dumb way to do business. I remember going through a, a seminar a while ago where they were talking about how supermarkets need to retrain customers that there will be certain parts of the year that they can't get certain fruits and vegetables. But we've been we've been sort of indoctrinated into this culture in America at least where everything is available all the time. It's the season, you're in season, you're out of season doesn't matter. You can get those grapes, you can get the apples, you can get the broccoli. It doesn't make a difference. You can always get it, right? Whereas CSAs and uh, farms were trying to create a new culture of awareness around, okay, you get your, you're going to get your fruit in this season, you're going to get your root vegetables in this season, and so on and so forth. But it hasn't stuck because we're used to getting what we want when we want it. That consumerism runs rampant through every aspect of the economy. And if you do the math on it, it will always mean you have to destroy the environment and you have to chase the cheapest labor possible in order to fulfill that piece of the puzzle. So that's the part of Just in Time to me, Jeremy, that's never spoken about. And I'm really glad you brought it up because supply chain – Of course, it was going to break down anytime there was a big disruption in it. And it could have been a famine. It could have been a storm. It could have been a pandemic or what have you. And it's something that we're going to have to consider going forward. Because if temperatures rise, we are going to have more extreme weather events. But we're also going to increase the propensity for these type of global pandemics. So this is going to be a new reality for us. And it's not necessarily about changing the paradigm of supply as much as it needs to be about changing the paradigm of consumption and backing away from the expectations that you can get anything and everything that you want whenever you want it. The Walmarts of the world, even a company as wonderful as Costco, uh, the companies that put themselves out there like a Whole Foods but now owned by Amazon, Whole Foods was always kind of performative in this way because they tried to – listen, they would put out sections of food where they're like, this is the season for it, but you could still get everything that you wanted no matter what. But there are others that do it the right way. So it comes down to a matter of consumption. But just understand that when you get that apple out of season, somewhere along the way, there you're chasing cheap labor that was exploited in order to get it there. And that its carbon footprint is going to be, you know, disastrous. So great, great point that Jeremy brought up. We have to get away from this just-in-time inventory idea. But if you run a corporation, it was probably the best, most enticing thing that you could possibly do, because it it meant that you were able to basically you were free to move about the world and exploit people at at your will.
1: We should do a specific farming episode. I know we touched on it in veganism, but Agreed. it would be fun. I think I have some friends we could call on.
0: Yeah, maybe a couple, two, three. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know some farmers. Okay. Hmm.
0: Factory farming. The difference between regular farming, protein, monocultures,
1: pesticides,
0: herbicides, GMO.
1: Monsanto. (laughs) Monsanto.
0: Oh, God, what a bad song.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I mean, there's so much there. What else could we we put into that?
1: Labor practices. Yes. Daylight savings times.
0: (laughs) Daylight savings. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there.
1: Veganic farming, which Mm -hmm. I talked about. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. Urban gardens, urban farming.
0: So there's a couple really good stories. What's the guy? Brad you read Pitt this story about? Oh, the um, did you say Brad Pitt? Mm-hmm. Just a, any guy?
1: You I said What's a guy, the you guy.
0: Said, oh, he is the guy.
1: No, he's just a guy. I think he's the guy. Mm, I disagree. Like I'm okay.
0: Sorry. The the guy in Detroit that started the that kicked off the urban gardening phenomenon. Let's look it up, on Unfuckers.
1: Hazen Pingree?
0: Let's see. In 1974, urban farming was in the spotlight again in the city of Detroit. Coleman A. Young had started the Farm-A-Lot program. The program had two goals, the first of which was to help eliminate blight throughout the city, and the second was to encourage citizens to grow some of their own food. Cool stuff.
1: Well, I think he's stealing it from this man or Tell me. person. I don't know their... The city has a long history of urban farming, stemming as far back as the 1890s, oh. when Mayor Hazen Pingree encouraged residents to plant potato patches on vacant land. But th- for those who are new to the city and new to farming, it Detroit can be a really complicated place to navigate. So, I think this is an article from. Uh, it's a PBS. I guess they have a, a subpublication called Why, but it's two Ys. I don't know what this is, but I trust it since it's PBS. WHYY is actually the public media organization in Philadelphia. So NPR affiliate, PBS affiliate. Okay, well,
0: I'll I'll see your reference and raise you the Potawatomi.
1: Well, that makes more sense. The indigenous
0: people (laughs) of Detroit who lived off the land. How about that?
1: Yeah, that makes much more sense. There's will.
0: a there. There's definitely urban urban farming is a very very cool. There's been a lot done on it obviously, but it's a very cool thing to to work into the equation.
1: Yeah, I will. I'm gonna link this article about Detroit because it's interesting.
0: Groovy. All right, let's get over to. <laughs> Groovy. Uh, let's get over to social media.
1: Sure. So on Twitter, Will Watkins fourth.
0: Oh, I was gonna let you.
1: I know, but it's fun when you do it.
0: Okay. Go ahead.
1: Sure, so on Twitter, Will Watkins Forth. Hold for it. I am William Wallace. (laughs) Said, Max, this kind of thing has always bugged me. How Congress works great when it's all about supporting corporate interests or the war machine. Bills passing like a motherfucker. Thanks for this focus. The work continues.
0: Oh, I'm glad you appreciated it. Good stuff. And Wild Eyed Bob said, Hey, this needs attention, Max. Free to care for reforming America's predatory healthcare system, a physician-led roadmap to patient-centered medical care, FreeToCare.org. Where the money is going, the itch to consolidate, just tell us ahead of time what, what it will cost, the profitability of nonprofit status, co-founded consolidation, a profile in waste. Wow, this is great.
1: I went to their homepage, it says- Ooh, and
0: they got a whole big section on PBMs. Oh, thank you, Knudsen.
1: Says personal, not partisan. We're making healthcare transparent, personal, affordable, and accessible. 70,000 plus physicians, 32 member organizations, 8 million plus free to care advocates.
0: You know. Well, so this is something that. First of all, if we dig back into healthcare, we can use this. And I think this will be useful uh, when I put together the PBM episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, for anybody that was interested in our healthcare series, this looks like a really good addendum to it. So, uh, of course, as always, thank you, Bob.
1: Yeah, we will link that out.
0: All right. So now we have members. We got new members that we have to welcome into the fold. First off, is TJR. Welcome to the fold, unfucker TJR. Thank you for becoming a member.
1: Jared F. is now a member. Been listening for a couple years now. Glad to be pitching in.
0: Thank you so much. And Bree X. is now a member. Dude, you unfucked me so hard. I can't think of anything to say at the moment besides thank you. May I have more? Please, sir. I want some.
1: more.
0: More? Well, you taking out a membership guarantees there will be more. So thank you, Bree X.
1: Matthew H. is now a member. Came from Pitchfork. When I looked you up, your back catalog wasn't too big, so I started from the beginning. Great show.
0: Awesome, dig it.
1: Sort of a backhanded compliment, Matthew, but okay. No,
0: it's good. It's good, and of course now we can barely even find our own episodes. It's getting so large. We're coming up on uh, like a hundred
1: full unfuckings. Yeah, roughly. Mm. Oh well. Yeah, I mean it's not like
0: well, full unfuckings is like seventy-five, I think, right? And then we've got when you add the quickies. The mm-hmm. phone of friends and the topicals into it. We're almost at a hundred. No,
1: we're over a hundred. Oh yeah, we have thirteen quickies. I mean, I'm excluding show notes. Two phone of friends, yeah. five topicals, and then bonus episodes that we've done. And the bonus like the bonus puts us over. Mm-hmm. Yep, pretty neat. I, I can math.
0: Yeah, I can't.
1: Only when I I can do like I'm so bad at simple mathing. math in my head, but otherwise no.
0: It's like when I write into the scripts, uh, millions instead of billions, and Manny's like, You mean billions, right? Yeah, like, yes I do. Thanks. <laughs> Jolene DR is now a member. Love what you do, keep it up.
1: Leon Fucker Trucker is now a member. Hello again, you and FTR crew, been listening in the background for some time and occasionally making my presence known through the odd message. Love your show, love what you'll do. And I figured I'd finally make a contribution when I was able. Your humbler listener, the Unfucker Trucker.
0: That is so awesome. Thank you, Unfucker Trucker. Keep on good truckin'. to hear from you.
1: Sing trucking right now.
0: Trucking. Got my chips cashed in. Keep trucking.
1: Truckin'. I mean, I'm surprised you even knew the melody, so I'll give it to you.
0: I know trucking. hmm Trucking. Trucking. Tennessee Jed. hmm And...
1: You know Touch of Grey. I know you do. Okay. It's like, I will get by. Yes. Uh, I know that one too. It's one when in the aforementioned previously, the thing about Obama talking at that conference, yeah. he was talking about the dead because the person interviewing him is a big deadhead. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I like the dead. He was like, I have some deep cuts and he was like, touch of gray. And I was like, Not a deep It's literally cut, one of three that makes it to the radio. Not you probably know Casey cut. Jones too.
0: Yes, Casey Jones better. Watch your speed. Yes. Yes. Trouble
1: ahead, trouble behind.
0: Trouble behind. Yeah,
1: you probably know Scarlet Begonia's because of the Sublime cover. Do I? She got rings on her fingers and bells on her shoes. I knew without asking she was into the blue. Nope. I think if I played it for you, you would know it. And you would know Friend of the Devil, if you didn't say that already.
0: Friend of the Devil is a friend of mine?
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I do know that one.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And they do some, like, Americana songs that you would probably know.
0: All right. You know. Look at me, the deadhead. Yeah. Barnabaldi (laughs) bought three coffees for us. Said started from the beginning a few months ago. Still have a year to go. That's awesome. Has really helped me break my addiction to free market libertarianism. I have a little trouble with a couple clear biases, but we'll save for another day. The general humility and fairness exhibited makes this one of my top three podcasts. That's really, really cool. Thank you, Barnabaldi. And someone... Also bought us three coffees. And I deeply, deeply appreciate that. Do we have a review?
1: We do. Tell me. From Jay Deadmon. Maybe he's a deadhead. A deadmon. Maybe they're a deadhead. <laughs> I don't think you should be doing that. Very Adrian Brody of I'm you. Done. <laughs> do you remember the video I made <laughs> you watch? Okay. Just checking. That was, Unfuckers. That was
0: horrifying. Google
1: Adrian Brody or don't. doing a Rasta. It's like not on YouTube. It's There's like okay. one Twitter account that has it. And Everyone blamed him and he was banned from SNL, but it technically wasn't his fault.
0: And they went over it. They in all, yeah, they, they all, all should have. It.
1: He shouldn't have agreed to it. Right, but it's not solely his fault. Like we should also drag Lorne because. Um, yeah, he I'm said
0: still yes. mad about his. He just went way over the top in Peaky Blinders too. He's in that. He is. I didn't know that. Yeah, is he pretending to be British. He no, he's Italian. Fine, but he just does a really cheap Brando ripoff. Hmm. It, was just, it just didn't work.
1: He's in the new, that Marilyn movie, Blonde.
0: Which is getting crushed, by the way. Jeez. Yeah,
1: I'm honestly, I listened to a miniseries about her and I'd like never had any interest or knowledge about that her. Marilyn or yeah.
0: Ana de Armas?
1: Uh, Marilyn. Okay. And, you know, listening to, it's, it's uh, even the rich on Wonder. I think I've maybe mentioned it before. They do, it's like American Scandal, but mm-hmm. it's like they'll do more pop culture-y, And it's fun. It's a fun listen. I always learn stuff about, you know, they did one on Elizabeth Taylor that I really liked. So I I didn't know anything about Marilyn, and I was listening, and I was like, man, she had a fucking—she just— couldn't catch a break mm. she was just taken advantage of and yeah. she you know had addiction problems and whatever so no and not whatever but I was just learning about her and then I heard this movie was coming out and I was like oh that's cool maybe like before I knew like I don't care that Ada de Armas does it has an accent that doesn't bother me because that was the first controversy that you know her accent came through but the mm. apparently the estate like her estate said they supported her as the choice and then when I looked into it, I, don't I realized. do support her in pretty much anything. Yeah, she's 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 really pretty. Beautiful. Yeah, and also and that's so, a good actress. So very shallow. That's okay. Her.
0: She's just exceptional.
1: Yes, no. When I found out it was a fictional story, so oh, it's, it is. It's not a biopic. It's there's a. I guess I don't know if it's based on a book or something. But instead of Arthur Miller being called Arthur Miller, he's called like the writer. And Joe DiMaggio is like the athlete. Mm. So like no one's themselves, and it's. It's it's like it's basically historical so it's fiction. It's kind
0: of meta. Yes. In its own way.
1: And then apparently they're taking all these very gratuitous liberties with the talk about you know her abortions. Mm. And apparently, the, I mean, spoiler alert. Apparently, I read a whole thing about it. So she has an abortion. She had one later on, and apparently like, the first abortion scene was very harrowing. But the second one, it said. The fetus talks to her in like a child's voice and says, are you going to hurt me again? Implying it's the aborted fetus. And as and they basically portray it as like a punishment for the first abortion. It's just like, why is this like pro pro pro-life propaganda? Yeah. So don't don't watch that. And I don't blame Anna de Armas, but why?
0: And it's not Adrian Brody's fault either.
1: I mean, I get, but it's, I, I mean, it gets into the, like, how, where I do we. I mean, for the
0: Marilyn movie being bad. Oh, yes. yes.
1: <laughs> no, but how do we, do how do we hold actors responsible for roles in movies? Like, you, they're all, all the people, well, not all the people, but the the name brand people are big enough to have read the script before signing on. It's like, you don't see that and go, hmm. Well, I mean,
0: we all have to learn, right? Like, you started off the podcast doing it in blackface.
1: Mm. Strike that from the record. <laughs> But seriously, I'm mad at Taylor Swift because she's in fucking that Amsterdam movie.
0: Is that a bad movie? It looks really clever.
1: No, David O. Russell is like admitted to sexually, assault- sexually assaulting his niece. What? Yes. He's like full on the record about it, claiming it was like consensual. Oh, yeah, it's oh in his no. Wikipedia. It's not like a buried oh, no. story. Yeah.
0: Why do people work with this person?
1: Why do people still work with Woody Allen? I mean, he's retiring. I also was just reading about, um, hmm. for some reason, how did I stumble on the... I mean, not stumble. I was reading the Roman Polanski Wikipedia. Oh, boy. Well, obviously, we all know. But there was like a a series of petitions not even not that long ago for actors wanting him to be released. And there were like big people on there who were like, yeah, let him come back to America. You know, Quentin Tarantino, which made me feel validated that I I knew he was a bad person. Um, Woody Allen, I think, was on there. But Wes Anderson had signed it. Really? Yeah. Like real. I think Meryl Streep had signed it. There were like three people. Oh, Sigourney Weaver. That's how. Oh that's no, how I,
0: Sigourney. Say it isn't so. I know.
1: That's how I got onto because I was watching Holes, and I was like Wikipediaing her, and I read that, and I was like, oh no, because there are a few people who retracted their support. Like Natalie Portman apparently signed it, but then was like, I learned, and never mind. This mm. is bad. Um, but I yeah. saw
0: Sigourney Weaver in the city when I was with my friend. Who's since passed away? Who was one of the strangest people in, literally, that I'd ever met. And I, but I love this guy. He was just, but he was his own thing. He was, he was, he was crooked, and he was he just. There was so many issues with him, but kind of a lovable character. We met for coffee in the city, and then we were walking down the street afterwards. And he was sort of like this. By this time, he was a little old man, kind of hunched over. He was always, he was Orthodox Jew, so he's always dressed in like. You know, everything cloaked from you know head to toe in in black, huge, huge red beard, huge, 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 who's massive, massive red beard, and uh, Sigourney Weaver is like on the sidewalk right, right in front of us, just by herself, and he's engaged in conversation, and he stops and he looks at her, he goes, Sigourney, <laughs> she looks over, she's like yes, he's like, looking good, kid, Ew. and then we just kept walking down the street, I'm like, okay, that was the, that was one of my. Favorite New York moments. That was just perfect. <laughs> well, Did I ever tell you my favorite, favorite New York moment?
1: No. Okay. I mean, maybe, but.
0: So you'll know where I was in a second because it's part of the story. I'm walking down the street in the city, Manhattan proper, <laughs> and there's this tourist- Family, and that's literally blocking the sidewalk, which is one of the most annoying things that you could ever like be just imagine in New York, right?
1: I know you're explaining to the unfuckers, but I'm like, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) I'm walking here, hey, I'm walking here, I'm walking here.
0: So I'm walking down the street, and there's it's a mom and dad, two kids, they all have the jackets with the pockets all over, right? So it's like your keys, your passport everything, like long jackets, just pockets, pockets everywhere in these people, and they're all matching, right? Cute. It's just They're right out of a bad fucking 80s movie. And they're looking straight up, and the mom says <laughs> to the family, well, there it is, kids. The Empire State Building. Look at it. Coming the other way is a New Yorker. We're both trying to get around these people, and he stops and he looks at the mother and goes... It's the Chrysler building, you fucking asshole. I was
1: just going to say, is it the <laughs> Chrysler kept, building? <laughs> just kept walking.
0: And I nearly fell on the sidewalk laughing. They were horrified. And I was like, I, I, I thanked uh, whatever Lord you pray to that I was there for that brief. He wasn't doing it for my benefit. He wasn't doing it to make himself laugh. He was just generally frustrated that they were in the way and didn't know what the fuck they were looking at. And it was mwah, the best <laughs> New York moment ever. I like that. On that note, on fuckers, we've got wait, the, I don't
1: think I read this review. Oh. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I think, how did I get Wait, I, I said Deadhead and then-
0: Deadman, oh, Redman. Oh, Adrian and Brody. <laughs> Adrian Brody. <Anna laughs> and Armas here, here we are. Telling New York stories. Wow. And the review says- <laughs> if
1: I'm not listening to murder podcasts. I'm listening to UNFDR. Thanks for all you do. <laughs>
0: all right. I'll take that. <laughs> Well, thanks, unfuckers. Thanks for sticking with us. We appreciate you. This week is going to be the second and final installation of our FCC. You mean
1: installment?
0: Installment.
1: Installation is like...
0: Yeah, I'm going to do a little installation over here. Forget about (laughs) it. So the second and final installment of the FCC series. And it is going to focus more on the Reagan era forward. So look out for that one. And then uh, we'll see you in post-show musings.
1: Bye.